Hey, good morning, Watermark. Good to virtually see you all again. Every week of this online thing gets us closer to the real thing. Um, and I must admit, uh, coronavirus is the most frustrating group project that I've ever been a part of. <laughs> so do your part, uh, wear your masks, socially distance, and uh, we'll get through it. And uh, this week we've got a... Uh, I, I've been loving the studies this week, and uh, I think you'll find it rather enlightening, going into some history of uh, uh, different parts of the church. And uh, we're specifically in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. We're going to go down to about verse 43 today. Yeah, we're going to finish up chapter 9. So moving right along, um, starting verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name was Dorcas. She, she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And Peter went with them and he arrived. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter get up, he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Okay, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to talk about these two healings and sort of Place it in a setting, a framework, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we gather here uh, in heart and spirit, wherever we are. Um, I pray that you will continue to lead us through this. I pray that we will uh, have patience so that uh, we can um, continue to protect the least amongst us who, uh, who are in need of it. I pray that we would sacrificially put our, our selfish desires aside and, and uh, do what needs to be done in these times so that uh, your world can find healing and so that we can be a people who bring that healing. Um, continue to, to stoke that fire in our heart that we have for each other and for this community. Um, continue to uh, help us to rightfully yearn to be together again. And... Uh, when we do come back together, I pray that you would give us direction and inspire us to, uh, to fix this broken world. Give us, give us ways forward, a path forward. Lead us. Go before us. Thank you for being with us through the last four months. Continue uh, to be with us now. Give our, our leadership guidance as we, uh, as we plan our next steps. And as we move towards wholeness again, 
be with us this morning as we read this chapter, this passage, bring back to my attention and my mind the things that I've studied this week, the ways that you've spoken to me, the ways that you've spoken to all of us, the ways that you have prepared all of us to receive uh, your message this morning. Thank you, God. We lay ourselves before you. Be with us. In your name, amen. Okay, we're going to start with the healing of Aeneas this morning. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to move on to where we at, uh, the, the healing of Tabitha. And then we're going to sort of paint a picture, because Paul uses some words here to describe uh, the early Christians. And this is all going to sort of come together. Um, so let's start here. The healing of Aeneas. Um, when Peter, I want to point out some things. When Peter healed Aeneas, he did not walk up to Aeneas and say, if you were to die right now, do you know where you'd go? <laughs> He didn't do that. Um, he didn't ask Aeneas to, to pray a prayer with him. Um, he didn't even say, I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ, as you hear people say today. He walked up to the man and he said, I heal you. Christ, uh, I'm sorry. He said, Christ Jesus heals you. And he healed the man. Um, he pointed directly to Christ and he says, Christ is healing you. Um, and I want you to notice and ponder the lack of modern methodologies that the apostles were using. I want you to ponder how different this is from how we tend to do gospel work today. Perhaps, if you're like me, you've attempted at multiple times in your life to repair brokenness, broken systems, uh, making people whole. You've attempted to alleviate people's suffering. Some of you are out there doing that right now. I see... Uh, I see your Instagram posts and, and, and you on Facebook and you're out there and you're calling for justice. And I love that. And I support that 100%. And you've been, uh, but perhaps you've done this work and you've been confronted by your own brothers and sisters who have looked you in the eye or written you letters and just simply said, you know, what you really need to be doing is just preaching the gospel. That's all. And nothing else. Um, and perhaps you've reached, you've received that kind of uh, rebuke as well. I have many times in my life. Um, specifically almost, almost every time I talk about racial justice and almost every time I talk about racism, um, uh, you get that kind of response. Just don't talk about that and preach the gospel as if the gospel is this whole other thing that is unconcerned with suffering in this world. Um, this man was not a believer at all. He, he wasn't a follower of Jesus, didn't know who Jesus was. Um, and in fact, it is because he was not a believer and he was in suffering that Peter first walks up and offers him physical healing. I want you to notice that. And this happens over and over and over again, especially in the book of Acts. There is no, not a single instance in the book of Acts where someone walks up and talks to somebody about their eternal destination in hell. Hell is not mentioned in the book of Acts. That's an important thing to understand. You have to pay attention to the methodology that the early apostles were using, how they were building the church. Um, Peter walks up and heals this man and brings salvation from this actual physical thing first that, he is, that has been torturing him for so long. And it's only after that that he heals him that the man comes to faith. And Peter specifically says, it is Jesus who heals you. I am here as a representative of Christ, and this is what Christ does. Christ heals you, okay? Now, the gospel message, 
We've talked about this ad nauseum, and hopefully you know where I'm at now with this. The gospel message is the message that Jesus is king, okay? Um, And the message that Jesus is king is not actually good news if it doesn't actually bring any healing along with it to anyone. That would actually put it on par with the Roman gospel, that there was a new king, and that's all. Believe in this guy. And that's all. Um, the Christian gospel, as opposed to the Roman gospel, is actually setting, actually it, it, it set people free by welcoming them into this whole new community, this whole new way of being, where masters and slaves were brought in together and then treated as equals. And oftentimes you would see the slaves preaching the word. There's an early church, very early church um, pastor named Onesimus. It's not likely the same Onesimus from the book of Philemon. Onesimus was a regular sl- slave name, and it means useful. It's a name that a lot of slaves had. Uh, it's like naming a tool to hammer. This is a useful tool, right? But you see Onesimus as a pastor in the church leading a very diverse group of people, men and women, slave and free, um, Jew and Gentile, all together there. Um, so the very act of bringing somebody into the church was in reality an act of setting someone free from oppression and injustice in the church. Um, And so every time they gathered together, they were in a just, right, small, but powerful society. And when they left the church, they went back into the world to live this out, okay? Um, But in today's society, it's actually quite easy to conjure up a gospel with no justice at all. It's not hard to do. You can see it everywhere. You can hear it all over America this morning, you, will, you, you, can, you can tune into all kinds of online messages. Now that they're all online, they're easy to find. And you can hear gospel messages, quote unquote, with no justice at all. A gospel that leaves people in exactly the same suffering they were in before they received it. That does not confront any kind of oppression. That is identical to the Roman gospel pronouncement that there's a new king, but it leaves people in the same place of suffering as the old king left them in. And they're like, hey, here's a get out of jail free card for later. Don't use it now. It's for another time. But what about now? What do we use now? Does Jesus have any message for us now? Remember, the, remember the, the preaching of the gospel was present among many things in, in our recent history. Um, American slave owners, um, quote unquote, preached the gospel to their slaves. And by the way, there was a lot of debate about even whether or not they should preach the gospel to their slaves, because if they did, their slaves would start thinking that they were equal with their masters, and they couldn't have that. So what they gave them was sort of an edited, what they called a gospel, but it was no gospel at all, an edited form of a gospel that kept them subservient to their white masters, okay? Let's go to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. There was genocide and slaughter, yet the church, the general German church at large, was quote-unquote preaching the gospel but it was not a useful gospel for anything in the world. It didn't make anything better. It allowed slaughter and genocide and hatred to continue. That is a useless gospel. That is a Roman gospel. It was very effective in assisting the Nazis. Um, Apartheid. Um, All throughout apartheid South Africa, there were quote-unquote churches preaching the gospel And yet they allowed oppression and injustice and racism to flourish. Um, Let's go um, to um, mid-century Rwanda, right? Like 80s, not mid-century, like 80s Rwanda, 80s, 90s Rwanda, um, where these tribes were slaughtering each other. Did you know 
that all, most of the slaughter actually came on a Sunday in which all of the people who were, who were later that afternoon slaughtering their brothers were first that morning gathered in their churches worshiping Jesus. And they walked out of their churches and proceeded to pull out machetes and slaughter their brothers and sisters in the streets with these machetes, cutting them to bits. Men, women, children, elderly. Quote, unquote, Christians preaching the gospel to each other. This is no gospel at all. Okay. The gospel in its context, understood well, brings freedom and healing. This used to be well known. If you go back into church history and you read, even as early as like the Cappadocian fathers, that's Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, um, Gregory of, 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 uh, of Nazianzus, two Gregories. Um, um, these are the church fathers who invented the hospital. They invented hospices. They invented public health care for the masses in their cities. They were known for this. Why? Because the gospel demanded it. Because the gospel set people free. They saw it as primary to the preaching of the gospel to also seek the justice and the welfare of the neighbors in their land. You know, uh, most, most modern political conversations, you can really boil down to the simple question, one simple question, who is my neighbor? That is the debate that most Christians don't want to admit that they're having. Well, who is my neighbor, though? Okay. Jesus specifically set out to answer that question. Um, let me tell you another story. Um, you, may not, you may not know this. Um, right up until near, near modern history, um, when Christians have always sought to sort of heal and bring justice to society, there's this man named, in, in 1780, his name was Robert Rakes, R-A-I. K-E-S, Rakes. He was an Anglican, um, and he noticed um, that in his day, when he was on his way to church, Anglican worship uh, services, um, it was only for the adults. It's high church. It's, um, it's a specific way of, like, there's these chants and these liturgies, and there's specific ways of doing church, and children didn't really fit into this mix, and they didn't have children's ministries back then, and so the children, on his way to church, the children are running all over the city, and they're playing. This is the one day they had off. Why? Because the other days of the week, those children were working in factories. This was, this was you know, industrial revolution. These children, at the age of, of six and seven and eight, are working in factories um, alongside of adults. Um, the only children that were educated, like, they're doing this in the morning, from the six in the morning till six in the evening, the only people who, children who were actually educated were the very wealthy children because their parents could afford um, to hire, um, you know, educators to come into their home and teach them. There was no public school. And so Robert Rakes has this idea. He says, um, hey, uh, we have extra church buildings. Um, and he went to the Anglican church and he said, why don't we try to educate these children who will only ever live the same life, their entire life they're growing up. They will grow up working in these factories and they will grow old working in these factories. They will have children who will work in these factories. They will never be able to climb out of their situation. It will keep the rich children rich and the poor children poor. So here's what we're going to do. And Robert Ricks went to the Anglican church and he invented this thing called Sunday school. Perhaps you've heard of it. Sunday school um, was this... Um, it was this thing that he started all over churches in England. They hired, uh, they, they set church funds aside um, to hire poor women. Uh, and they taught these children on Sunday mornings while their parents were in church. They taught these children hygiene, reading, music, 
hymns and they taught them the catechism. And they called these children, they referred to them as scholars to sort of instill in them this sense of dignity and pride. And uh, Robert Rakes, he even, at one point, we have records of him inviting all these children to dine with him on New Year's Day, uh, 1795. Um, and the specific record we have, it, it says he invited them to dine on beef and plum pudding. And he writes about the occasion. He says this, here's a quote. He says, I wish you could step in and see what clean and joyous countenances we shall exhibit. Um, and you would not be disappointed to hear how well they sing their maker's praise. And he's writing this to everyone else in the city. He's like, you should see these children and how they come alive and how they're learning and how they're growing. Okay. This all started in the church, this public education for the children. And in fact, in 1803, not too long after he starts this whole thing, there was an entire Sunday school union uh, where there was not a single poor child who was not being educated in England. They were all being educated by the church. And by 1870, the Elementary uh, Education Act um, established public schools that offered free and compulsory education to children with whatever background they grew up in. Uh, and they started doing this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They started doing this all week long. And so the, Sid, the, the, the world was looking at what the church was doing, and they come in and they said, this is really, really effective, and it's quite beautiful. Um, why don't we take this off of your plate and we will follow you, church, in what you are doing and educating these poor children. And so, you see, the public school was invented by the church. The church has always, until recent history, played a part in the embetterment of society, in making the world whole again. But now I want to take that from that point. I want to fast forward 84 years. And I want to watch what happens because I was raised in Christian school. Um, and in general, the Christians that I knew didn't put their kids in public school because they thought the public school was in general evil. Why would we allow secular people to teach our children? Um, and so 84 years, though, after these public school programs started modeling themselves after the church, um, something started happening called desegregation. Because at first in America, the black and white children were not allowed to go to school together. But when desegregation began to happen in America, my, my dad tells me these stories because he was a kid back then. Um, during desegregation, he was in, he was in school. And um, Christians, basically, when the black children started coming into the, to the schools to get the same education as the white children, um, the people who were most upset about this were actually the Christians, the evangelical Christians. And they turned their backs on the public school system. And that is when they invented this thing called the private Christian school. If you go back to the vast majority of private Christian school, um, like their charters, when they were started, almost all of them started during desegregation or in the two or three years around that. Um, and my own dad tells me that like he was in school and his white friends were being pulled out by their Christian parents because their churches were starting schools. Okay. Do you see how far we can get from what we should be doing? Okay. Uh, my dad tells me that a lot of his white friends, were, were, their parents were pulling them out. And his dad looked at him and said, we are not do, taking part in that. And my dad stayed in the school and, um, and watched things change. And I say all of this not to tarnish the church. I mean, uh, pointing out history um, isn't intended to tarnish anything. It's meant so that we can learn and we can see where we've gotten off track. I say all of this so you will understand that when someone says to you, just preach the gospel, 
in response to um, the terrible things happening in the world, I would argue, and church history would argue, that they have veered from 2,000 years of church tradition of caring for the poor and the weak and the least of these and working for the healing of the sick, working for the welfare of the poor and oppressed in our cities and in our world. We have veered off track when we can look at the suffering in the world and say, don't address that, just preach the gospel. It'll take care of itself. Um, I want to push back against that. We are representatives of the gospel. We are the presence of Christ in this world. We are to be a city on a, on a hill, a light in this world that people look at and say, we should be, we should be learning from the Christians. Um, it is the healing in this passage with Aeneas, it is the healing, his physical healing, that actually prepares the ground of his heart and his soul to accept the seed of Christ. Okay? We must announce to the world that Jesus is king first with our actions. And while we do this with our actions, while they are all looking at us with gladness in their hearts and receiving healing and wholeness, we point away from ourselves and we don't point, look, look what we did. I'm doing this in the name of, no, no, no. We're not doing this in the name of Jesus. Jesus is doing this through us. We point away from ourselves and we say, Jesus has healed you. Jesus has set you free. Jesus intends to continue setting you free. Okay? That's the healing of Aeneas. Now, let's talk about Tabitha. Tabitha, who is apparently by the passage also named Dorcas. How unfortunate. Um, Tabitha is an amazing woman. Um, I want you to take some time this week, and I want you to read this passage of, of Tabitha's story of, of her resurrection here. And I want you to read it a couple of times, and I want you to spend some time in, in what's called uh, the Ignatian style of prayer um, over this passage. And let me explain what that is. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of prayer popularized by Ignatius of Loyola. Um, it encourages a Christian to sort of read the text, get the, get the, get the story in your mind, and then, and then meditate upon it and imagine yourself in this room, in the place. Imagine yourself in the garden with Mary. Imagine yourself at the cross with the centurion. Imagine yourself as different characters, watch the story through their eyes, listen through their ears. Use your imagination that God has given you and place yourself there. What can you see? What brings this thing to life, okay? Um, so let's sort of look at this here. Tabitha here is this stalwart force in the first century church. Uh, her specific focus is, is restoring the dignity of widows. This is her role in the church, in the early church. Again, they care about the suffering and oppression around them. And so this woman committed her life to serving the widows in their community, in their church community and around the church. Um, she was likely a widow herself. So she likely knew because of her own experience what this entailed. So she was probably a widow herself. Um, her husband probably was a man of a lot of money because she has a lot of money um, that she likely inherited. Um, and she was quite wealthy for her day. And so she's this renowned philanthropist, okay? She's, she's known throughout the land as, quote unquote, in Acts 9.36, it says she's known as always doing good and helping the poor, okay? So she's like this wealthy benefactor, pouring herself and her wealth out for the people around her. Around her. Um, she's also apparently a master seamstress. Um, she makes robes. She makes clothing for the widows in her care. Um, I want you to think back to when we've talked about possessions in the early church. Uh, in the first century, most people only had uh, one or two articles of clothing. They had an inner garment and an outer garment, and that's all they had. And this woman 
because clothing was very expensive and you would wear it for years. Okay. You didn't have multiple outfits. You didn't have closets. Okay. This woman is making clothing that is very expensive to do, making clothing for these women. And so we can presume that just like most Christians in the early church, that she's imparting also these skills to these women. We know that um, the elders in the early churches taught their people to read and write. And eventually the Christians in the time of the, the reason Christians were writing so many books in the first century is because Christians were the only people that really knew how to read and write. 98% of, of the world in that day didn't know how to read or write unless you were a trained scholar, but the Christians were training each other, men and women, to read and to write, and it set them apart from the world, okay? Um, so she's likely imparting these skills also to her people, because um, this is what they did back then. And so when we first hear about her in Luke's book of Acts, um, she has succumbed to some kind of illness, and she's, she has died, and, and her body's been washed and prepared for burial, likely uh, in the process of being wrapped. And so um, her ministry was so critical to the early church that Peter himself, the apostle Peter, was summoned to her bedside. That's how important they felt she was. Who are we going to get? What do we do about this? Let's go straight to the top. Let's get Peter, okay, the oldest disciple of, of Christ. And they brought Peter in, and Peter arrives, and he finds all these widows from all across Joppa, the, the area, and they're weeping in her home, and they're, they're crying out, and they're just beside themselves and hopeless. They don't know what to do because this woman meant everything to them. And they're showing him the clothes that she made. And they're like, look what she did for me. Look what she did for me. And you, let me tell you what she did for me. And Peter, he appears to be overcome with emotion. He sends everyone out of the room and he falls on his knees. And he starts praying and begging God to intervene here. And he turns towards her body. And he learned this from Christ. Okay, every healing that happens here notice, is a mimic of what Christ has done. And so Peter is just trying to be the presence of Christ. He's not trying to do anything himself. And he turns to Tabitha, and just like he saw Jesus do, he looks at her and he says, get up. Tabitha, get up, verse 40. And it says that Tabitha opened her eyes and she sat up. And Peter takes her by the hand and helps her to her feet. And he calls out for the widows. And they come running into the room and they find her alive. Okay, this is just one of two resurrection stories in the entire book of Acts. It's a huge deal. Tabitha was apparently so influential in the early church that, Luke's act, that Luke actually, when he writes this story, gives her the distinction of being the only woman in all of the Bible referred to uh, by the, the, the feminine pronoun, the feminine form of the Greek word for disciple, which is this word methotreia. Okay. She is the only woman called a mathetreia. Like it's a special um, title that is given just to her by Luke. Apparently, she was pretty special. The word literally means apprentice, okay, which means two things. It means at some point she studied directly under Jesus, that she, she sat at Jesus' feet. She's likely one of the rings of outer rings of disciples that follow Jesus. There's 12, and then there's 72, and then there's 500. Maybe she's one of the 72. And it also means, second, that she became a leader in the church because this is what apprentices do. They become leaders in the church. And the book of Acts is filled um, with all kinds of women doing important things in the church and leading in various ways, okay? Now, you have these two healings, these two incredible things. And so something I, I, um, I, I do want to spend time on that and point out, like I have, that the healing and the justice work 
from the very beginning of the church was always a vital part of it. That cannot be denied. It can only be denied of today's church, not that church, okay? And something that is important to note is that Peter, when he writes, when he, when he speaks to the church, he's constantly referring to them, these Christians, as the word saints. Now, it's a word we don't really use much anymore, unless we're talking about someone like in the Catholic church who has died and achieving sainthood or something like that. Um, but twice the Christians at Lydia at, at Lydda are called saints in verse 32, verse 41. Um, and there's some version, uh, some versions take this word and translate some, some, uh, some, some of your versions that you'll be reading. If it's like ESV, NIV, uh, NLT, some of them will say saints and some will say believers. And they all come from sort of the, the same word here. It's the same word used earlier in the chapter by Ananias to describe the Christians at Jerusalem in verse 13. He calls them saints as well, the, the, the saints in Jerusalem. Um, it's a word that actually Paul always uses to describe church members as well. He always writes these letters to the saints who are at such and such, and such a place. Now, the Greek word that we translate as saints and believers, and it's one word. It's this word hagios, okay? I want you to say it. Let's reminisce back to March. Say it with me. Hagios. Say it again louder. Hagios. Your dog is looking at you sideways. Now, um, so hagios is a word that simply translates as holy. Oftentimes it's translated as holy to the holy people in this town. Um, but the root meaning of this word holy is very specific. A, a lot of translations today um, translate this uh translate as in different ways, like I've said, but the best translation of this word in today's modern language for holy, for hagios, is simply the word different, okay? When the Bible is calling members of the church hagios, when it's calling them saints, when it's calling them holy, it is simply a word that says you are different in the world. You are a set-apart people. It's the same phrases that were used for the Old Testament, for the, for the people of Israel. They're referred to as a people set apart. They're different. I had some friends planting a church on the other side of the bay, and they decided to call it Different Church. <laughs> I like it. It means set apart. You're not like everyone else. We are called to be different, okay? Um, too often, we, uh, we link some kind of moral meaning to the word different, to the word hagios and holy in the Bible, the word that we should translate as different. I, I'm hoping, actually, that some translations in the future start start saying different. I think that'll make a huge impact. Um, but oftentimes we hear the word holy, like you were called to be holy. And we apply sort of, we, we inject it with some modern meanings like pure or moral, right? You're called to be holy, be good, be moral, be pure. Okay. Now I want to be clear. God is never called pure in the Bible. He's called holy, but he is never called pure. Um, pure has to do specifically with um, temple cleanliness, okay? Holy is something, for lack of a better word, different, okay? Um, the best possible use of this word is different. I, 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 in the Bible, when it says, when, when God says, be holy as I am holy, I like to read that. I, and this is how I read it to my own kids. When I, I, I kind of sometimes translate on the fly. God says, be different as I am different. These words should ring in our ears when we, uh, when we read them. It has a lot more weight to it. Um, it sets people free to swim up that stream, okay? To not go with the flow. Be different. 
be a different people. Don't look like everyone else. Um, and <laughs> excuse me, it's um, God's people. <laughs> God's people all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, they're, they're constantly called to be holy and different. God calls his people, his nation, a holy nation, a set apart people. This is exactly why in the Old Testament there have all these, if you've ever wondered why, um, they have all these weird eating laws. Like, why are they told to eat certain things? Why are they told to not do certain things in their garden? Why are they told to wear certain types of clothes? Why are they told to have long tassels uh, hanging off their clothes? Why is their hair weird? Why is God making them look vastly different from everyone else? So that, the answer is simple, so that you could recognize them because they're different. They are a holy, set-apart people. If you have a crowd of people, you should be able to see God's person, an Israelite, standing in the middle by the clothes that they wear, the prayers that they're praying, the way that they're walking, the way that they're living, um, all the weird things that God has told them to do. It's all about being different in the world. Because from the beginning, God wanted, wanted his people um, to stand out. He wanted people when they see a Jewish man or woman to instantly know who they were so that they could stick out like a sore thumb and people could look at them and say, if you watch them, you'll know what their God is like. Okay. It is no different for us. When we are called saints, when Paul is writing to the saints in this city, in that city, he is expecting that the world notices that they are odd, that they stand out. All right. There could be no hiding. There could be no amount of, of, of really cultural relevance in their lives. The way that they were living was different. They were different. And this brings me to my next thought for you. Um, if God's people are a holy and nation, a set apart, a different nation from the rest of the world, this means something for the world. In the Bible, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, there are two nations and only two nations. All of the nations of the earth are lumped together as one nation, and then God's people are considered a different nation. There's two nations specifically in the Bible. There is Babylon, and there is Israel. Okay, and you might be able to, right now you're thinking, no, there's Assyrians, and there's Hittites. and the, No, 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 no. I want to be clear. They were all spoken of as Babylon. When the Israelites spoke about any nation, they were calling them Babylon, okay? The kingdoms of this world are always lumped together as Babylon, and the kingdom of God is Israel. And in the mind, in the eyes of the early people, the followers of God, that's all there was, okay? Um, and I want you to understand this. I want you to grasp this, because we, the church, um, for the early for the early Christians, the church was the restored Israel. They had their king back. It was Jesus, their Davidic king. They had their land back. It's the entire world. It's now no longer just one patch of land in the middle of the Middle East. It's the entire world. Jesus is king of all. They had their temple back, but it wasn't a temple of stone. It was, it was the people. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's the reestablishment of Israel in a new way. Okay? In other words... The church is reconstituted Israel. Okay, and it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around. Okay, we are the continuation. The door has been kicked open. The Gentiles have been brought in. And we are the presence now of God's people in this world. And this should have weight on how you talk about the nations of this world. If there really is, and I'm going to get very specific. 
if there really is something that could count as a Christian nation, then that nation, by definition, is the kingdom of God. Any nation that claims to be a Christian nation is the kingdom of God. They would be a holy people set apart from the rest of the world who exists as a city on the hill, a light to the nations. And there have been many nations in the world throughout human history that have claimed to be the kingdom of God. America, Britain, the Holy Roman Empire. Think about that, the set-apart Roman, like the Byzantine Empire. Um, many nations throughout the world have established themselves and claimed to be uh, the one nation under God. But you see, that cannot be. Because the churches, that is the role of the church in the world. The early Christians spoke of Rome as Babylon. They knew it was called Rome. They called it Babylon. When you see Babylon falling at the end of Revelation, it is being overtaken. It's burning to the ground. And the people who were so heavily invested in it are weeping and gnashing their teeth as their city that they spent their, their entire life and generations building is being destroyed and replaced with this pristine, beautiful kingdom coming down from heaven to earth. And they are weeping because their monuments and their statues are falling and being destroyed because God doesn't plan on preserving any of them because his kingdom will be established and it will replace Babylon. And you have to understand this. Israel, Israel's king is God's own self. They rejected any earthly king over them, any, any ruler over them. Israel was God's own king revealed through Jesus. And so we know what our king is like. Jesus is king, king in this world. And so if you are a part of a kingdom whose king is not God's own self. Like if you're a part of a kingdom and you say, that's our king, we follow that king. Then I want to be clear. You are actually a citizen of Babylon. If that is your king, your country is Babylon. But if you are a Christian and you claim my king is Jesus, Jesus is Lord. That claim is what got the early Christians killed, because if Jesus is Lord, no one else is. We are a people who are set apart. We are a surrogate nation. We are an alternative kingdom in this world as a city on a hill to shine and let the world know how we are to organize ourselves and live in this world. And so the church was a place of justice, a place of goodness. Um, a place where our currency was love and mercy and forgiveness. And so now let's ask, who is it today that claims that God revealed through Christ is their king? Not a single early na earthly nation does. It's the church. We are the kingdom of God. That is who we are. We are not a nation of this world. The church lives in Babylon as a separate kingdom we are exiles and foreigners. This is what Paul is talking about. We live in Babylonian exile as a separate kingdom, Israel, God's people now in this world. The church itself is a state, an alternative state, a different people, a holy people. Um, and the point of all of that is so that 
we can live as a separate people so that as they go about with justice and mercy and forgiveness and charity and generosity, the, the nations of the world will see them, the church, they will see them and be drawn to them and what they have. And there's been many times in the world where this has happened. And it's been beautiful. And oftentimes it ends with people seeking our king. And this is what we see beginning right here in the book of Acts. Um, an earthly nation. I know this is rubbing. I know some of you are squirming right now, but I'm just going to say it crystal clear. An earthly nation cannot be a Christian nation because a Christian nation um, is the church. That is all. Uh, and so what role do we play? What do we do? I mean, you can read all through the scriptures, the things that the prophets told the people of Israel to do while they were living in Babylonian exile. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, tells the people who were literally in exile in Babylon, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. Seek the peace of these people. Show them what it looks like. Forgive as they should forgive. Live justly as they should live justly. So that they can see us as images of God and know what God is like. That is our role here. And as we live as a city on the hill, the kingdoms of the earth will see our light, our justice, our mercy, love, and forgiveness. And they will seek our Father in heaven. Um, we should honestly be swimming in an ocean of love and mercy in a holy community that rises above the injustices of the world, filled with justice that the world longs for. That's who we should be. The world should be longing for what we have. But it's not hard to argue that right now we actually don't have it. Instead of swimming in this ocean of justice, we are playing in these puddles of the earthly seats of power. We're trying to win them over. We're trying to impress their wealthy and their powerful. They should be striving like us because we are holy, because they are blinded by the glory of God shining in their lives. Like that's the role we should play. Um, that's, if I was to sum up this sermon, that's what this is. Justice is the ocean in which the gospel lives. Justice is the ocean in which the gospel lives. Justice is a system. It's not a, it's not a product. Justice isn't a helpful and hip addition to the gospel. As my, as my friend Megan Westro would say, she has a book coming out, seminary friend of mine. Um, Justice isn't, she says, justice isn't a helpful and hip addition to the gospel. It, it was intrinsic to the gospel. I, I would say it is the water that the gospel swims in. It is the air that it breathes. Uh, justice is the starting place and the end place of the gospel. If Jesus is king, then God is reconciling all things to God, to God's own self. All right? That's a good place to take communion because communion shows us how this works, how we are to bring this into the world. And how do we do it? Just like Jesus did. Um, the body broken and the blood poured out for the world. There are two elements in communion. There is uh, there's bread. It's the body of Christ broken and broken for the world. As Jesus gave his life, not just in the last moments of his life, 
but gave up everything, his entire existence, as seated at the throne of God and came down to live amongst the poor, to show them and guide them the way out. It's an incredible picture of how healing comes into the world. And then there's the blood of Christ poured out for all of us, for your healing, for your salvation, as it washes over us, cleansing us and filling us and giving us new life. And so take your elements if you would. And right now, why don't we do this in remembrance of Jesus, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, so that the world can find true healing and salvation for their soul, for their body, for their community, and for their world. Do this in remembrance of Christ. Father, we come to you. Revive us. Restore us. Let us look um, to the ancient church to figure out how we should dwell in this world. May our souls be deeply convicted when we read and when we see how, how far we have departed from your intentions for us. Uh, anchor our souls in you. If we must reform everything about our lives, give us the strength and faith to do so. I pray that we could be that light shining in the world. Thank you, Father. Bring us back together. Heal, heal our community, heal our world. <sighs> May we be your true images here. In your name, amen. Let's end with our uh, collect prayer this morning. God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved us. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless, and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you have an amazing week. I'm sorry I went longer than normal. I have nowhere to go. <laughs> Love you all. Grace and peace.